I read Leviticus chapter 2. Leviticus chapter 2. And let me just say, by way of introduction, our our conviction now as to whether Leviticus ought to be preached uh, will be tested. It's, It's all well and good introducing the sacrifices, but once you get in the thick of them, one by one, well then, we'll find out what we really feel and believe. I said to one minister, I was preaching at one chapter at a time, and he said, you're doing what? I preached one through seven as one chapter. Well, I still think this is right. I hope you will agree with me. Leviticus chapter 2 now, the grain offering. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it Uh, his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense. And the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. And if you bring as an offering a grain offering baked in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. But if you, if your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering baked in a covered pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar Then the priest shall take from the grain offering a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. It is an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And what is left of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in an offering to the Lord made by fire. As for the offering of first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but... They shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma and every offering of your grain offering. You shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering with all your offerings. You shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of grain roasted on the fire, grain beaten from full heads. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. Then the priest shall burn the memorial portion, part part of its beaten grain and part of its oil, with all the frankincense as an offering made by fire to the Lord. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for all of your word, even uh, the words which prescribed uh, the manner in which the grain offering was to be offered. And let us hear what you have to say to the church. Even now, concerning this matter, through the preaching, we pray. Let it be a help to us in understanding and taking to heart what you have to tell us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Having considered last time the burnt offerings in general, we come now to what is called the grain offering or the meal offering, or Bonar calls it the meat offering. I think so does Henry. It has various names. Another word for it, Morales in his commentary calls it the tribute offering. 
Typically, I think this is the most important point for us to grasp about everything I'm about to say, that the, that the, uh, that the tribute offering was offered along with the burnt offering. The burnt offering being offered, the tribute offering would follow. Bonar helpfully makes this distinction when he points uh, to two classes of sacrifices, those with blood and those without blood. The burnt offering was a sacrifice with blood. The tribute offering was an a sacrifice without blood. And no offering could be accepted without the shedding of blood. And thus what was offered without blood must be offered along with that which was. And so this is what Bonar says. He says the meat offering was generally or rather always presented along with some animal sacrifice in order to show the connection between pardon of sin and devotion to the Lord. The moment we are pardoned, all we are and all we have become property of Christ. And so very generally, and we'll come back to this at the end, the burnt offering uh, signified atonement, the forgiveness of sins, and the meal offering signified giving to the Lord from our own portion. It was an indication of our devotion to him and that all that we had and all that we are belong to the Lord. We have become property of Christ, he says. And again, you notice this stands out throughout uh, the passage. Anyone might do this. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be. And then there's various ways he might do it outlined throughout the passage. And so God assumes that all were aware that they might come and that all were invited. And uh, in the prescriptions uh, that he lays down for all the various classes of, of men, he makes the way free and easy for all to come to the altar of grace under the old covenant. Only he adjusts his expectations and his prescriptions according to one's rank and class in society. That's how we are to understand once again in Leviticus 2 as in Leviticus 1, the variety of types and ways uh, by which this offering might have been given. Something like uh, of the rich I require this and those a little less rich and those a little less rich and then of the poor and so on. Uh, that's the sense that you get. But was, what, what was important to grasp here in the way that this is outlined, is that God included and invited all, while at the same time excluded none from their duty to come to the temple and offer every kind of offering. None might plead ignorance, for here his will was plainly revealed. Nor could any plead poverty, for God allows the poor to offer their little. And though you notice, uh, at the same time, the rich must offer out of their abundance, and so we know that the offering would always be costly, even for the rich. And it was meant to be. It was meant to cost something of the offerer, which reminds us of the basic nature of the offering, of all the offerings. And that is that they were always to be seen as gifts, something that we ourselves offered unto the Lord, something which the offerer offered to God for God's own sake, as an acknowledgement of his mercy and justice and holiness, as well as our humble dependence upon God for all things. That especially stands out in the grain offering. It was something like a tithe, though not exactly the same. 
and something which for God's part he required and thus he delighted in from man when man would offer it in a spirit of faith and obedience. The point I want to stress at this point before we look at other things is the setting in which the offering occurred. We've already seen that uh, the grain offering really can't be considered for its own sake, but as part of this broader picture and this broader transaction that was occurring between the sinner and God. And so as this is one of many offerings that was to be offered, and as it is seen in connection with the rest, I would uh, wish to notice here the broader framework, the setting in which uh, the offerings were given especially the grain offering. And uh, I have five points to make here. The first is that the entire transaction occurred, let us remember, within the tabernacle itself. That which was, uh, as we know from the end of Exodus, already constructed and erected. It was standing. It was in place. And the tabernacle, you remember, was especially the place where God dwelt and the place where God might be found In his grace by the sinner of the old covenant. It was therefore the place where sacrifices and offerings were brought to God. And the importance of the tabernacle was, as we saw in the first sermon, that it was the sanctuary. It was the holy place like the garden. Only that which was lost now was regained in some sense now at the foot of Mount Sinai. The special place where God dwells and where man is able to commune with God. That is what our earthly sanctuaries represent. That's what the tabernacle was. It was thus called the tent of meeting for that very reason. Where God and man met together, where they communed and dwelt together. And where man might offer something uh, of himself unto God. And where at the same time God might offer something of himself to man. By his speech and by his grace. Second, we notice especially the importance of the altar. It is impossible to understand the transaction occurring and all that we find in Leviticus. And then especially as we find this later spelled out in the New Covenant without understanding the centrality of the altar. The altar was so significant in the Old Covenant. We find them uh, as early as Genesis. I have called this altar the altar of grace and for good reason. It's not the precise language we find here, but I think it's a useful way of describing it for that is what it was and how we should view it. It was the place, the specific place in the old covenant where the sinner might find grace from God under the old covenant. The place where the sinner, as I said in the last point, offered something of himself unto God and the place where God in return offered something of himself unto the sinner. It was also called and this you do find in the book. Uh, The altar, at least in Exodus, I'm not sure about Leviticus, the altar of burnt offering. And so uh, it was tied in a special way to the burnt offering. The altar was the place where the blood was sprinkled by the priests. It was the place where the offering once slain was placed and consumed with fire, making a pleasing aroma to God. The place, therefore, where God himself dwelt, not just in the tabernacle, but at the altar. And not just in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The place where God dwelt and accepted what was offered. And offered it as something which was pleasing to him. Again and again we read the refrain as a result of the fire. 
It was a sweet and a pleasing aroma unto God. He accepted, he delighted in what was offered. That's what the altar represents. The place where God and man and the priests came together and met daily. And the idea of the daily we will come back to. But I would also notice, since the idea of the sanctuary can be found in the, in the New Covenant as well, so too can the altar. The altar is not an exclusively Old Covenant idea. We are told, in fact, in uh, Hebrews that we have an altar which is better than theirs, and one of which they have no right to come, much like the mountain that we come to. Mount Zion, in comparison to Mount Sinai is a mountain which cannot be touched. Well, we too have an altar, much like the mountain which cannot be touched. A spiritual place of meeting. So that we might, uh, wherever the saints are gathered, meet with God. Whether here or in a field or in a factory warehouse. The place of worship becomes the altar of praise where the sinner meets with God. We could also speak of the cross, obviously, as uh, the altar of sacrifice. Let me read... Uh, Let me just read that verse to you. Not just Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched. That is the Mount Sinai. But he says you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and so on. That's how we are to view the new covenant and in particular the worship which occurs within the new covenant. Uh, Thus likewise, he says in chapter 13, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. A better altar. But did you ever think of your worship as a coming to the altar? And he says, here is what we offer at the altar of grace in the new covenant. Verse 15. Therefore, by him, that is Jesus Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Did you ever think of the prayers which we offer and the hymns which we sing as a coming unto the altar of grace and meeting with God there and offering spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. These are highly important verses, beloved, for us to comprehend if ever we are to grasp uh, the more spiritual and the better worship which is found in the new covenant. It is seen much as we saw between Christ and Adam in their comparison, uh, but even in the much more. Much more now are we able to meet with God in the better sacrifices and at the better altar. How much better do we have it by far in the new covenant? But how will we ever appreciate these greater blessings until we see that upon which they are based and compared to and which they exceed? So we've seen the tabernacle and more narrowly the altar, which faced the tent And was placed in the outer court, something which any man might access daily and there meet with God and his priests. But next, we must say something about the priesthood and our understanding of all this. Because that was also involved in the transaction that occurred at the altar in the outer court. The idea of the priesthood informs our whole view of grace, the covenant of grace. And we are not surprised to later find that very concept described to Jesus. And so grace was found not only at the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the meeting place, and especially at the altar of grace, but let us add as well the priests who daily ministered there. For their ministry was one of grace and reconciliation. The ministry of grace and reconciliation was assigned especially to them. 
The prophets were to give the law. The priests were to dispense mercy. They were seen as the mediators of the old covenant, as Jesus later becomes the mediator of the new covenant. Those who laid hold of God and his holiness and mercy and at the same time shared in the common lot of men. You remember what a priest is from uh, and what he was called to do from Hebrews chapters five and eight. He was to be selected from among men to represent them and make offerings and sacrifices unto God. That's more or less the definition you get in Hebrews chapter five, verse one and chapter eight, verse four, I believe it is. But the priest, as they ministered at the altar and in the tabernacle, did not act alone, but they acted uh, among and on behalf of the people. And really, we must see them as joined together. Offering gifts and prayers for the people, entering into the tent at the appointed time, ministering in the presence of God on behalf of the people. And, and as I've said, meeting with them at the altar of grace and intermingling with them there. See the importance of the priesthood. See the importance of the priesthood in the old covenant, first of all. For without that class of men, well, God would would remain distant and man would ever remain banished from the sanctuary as Adam had before them. God's grace would be absent and there would only be the prophets to utter his laws and his judgments unto men. Prophets like Noah. And so we would never find our way into the new and better covenant in which the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ is discovered and effectual unto salvation, but for the priesthood established already. Yes, be sure that you include the priesthood in this whole scheme of sacrifice, for this is where you find later Jesus Christ named among the priests. And yet... In the new covenant and indeed in the whole of the Bible standing alone as the only mediator between God and man. Whoever succeeded in putting away sin finally. And so we see how the priests participated in each of these rituals as well. Worship in the old covenant so also worship in the new is a joining together with the ministry. And receiving from the ministry of the priests. And especially as they did so in the Old Covenant, this was a way, a special way, for the faithful in the Old Covenant to be prepared for the greater things to come in the greater ministry and priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so we cannot think solely of the transaction that occurs between the sinner and God uh, occurring at the altar uh, being reduced to those two parties. For there at the altar of grace, we also find the priests as standing in the gap. And making grace possible and available to the people. And and God likewise receiving what the people offered through the priests. Of this we will have more to say. Number four. You have the tent itself. And so when I speak of the tabernacle. uh, Though the tabernacle is also the tent. I was really speaking of the greater structure. You have the tent. You have the outer court. And then you have the altar in the center. But in the middle. uh, Or maybe let's say at the back was the actual tent, the tent of meeting. But we do not read, as we saw last time, uh, any entering into the tent itself as they offered unto God. They, They met with God at the altar, but not in the tent of meeting. But we read at the same time that the altar faced the tent 
And thus it was to be offered before the Lord and even before the tent. That language, I think, was in chapter 1. And so as the offerings were offered, uh, the offerer was always to be mindful of God and his close presence and proximity to the altar. The arrangement of it all was intentional. And we are reminded here on this point, once again, how wonderful the ministry of Jesus is by comparison to what occurred in the Old Covenant. Because he brings us not only to the altar of sacrifice, but from the altar of sacrifice, unlike the Old Covenant, into the very tent of meeting. He going from there into the very presence of God and inviting us to join him, even into heaven itself, our greater sanctuary, and one after which the earthly sanctuary was patterned. And of this too we will have more to say in coming sermons. But at the fifth point, and everything has been building to this, and I might have said it first, but the great point to be said here in describing this entire transaction that occurred in the tabernacle at the altar where the priests were present, facing the tent of meeting. And we get the exact same sense in the, the same transaction that is occurring at the altar of grace in the new covenant, in its relation to the, the heavenly sanctuary and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. The entirety of it, which is being described in Leviticus and likewise as a corollary in Hebrews, is worship. And I think I've already been saying that, haven't I? It's worship. Leviticus is a manual of worship in the Old Covenant. This is a description of the worship that the Old Covenant saints performed unto God and which he received from them as a sweet aroma. The altar of sacrifice is a place of worship. There are certain ingredients that make this clear to us, which I could divide in two. And you find the same ingredients in our directory of public worship in uh, the Book of Order. And first is obviously the presence of God, which has been uh, emphasized throughout what I've been saying. The presence of God not merely uh, speaks of a sanctuary, for that is what makes a place a sanctuary, that God is there in a special way. But to speak of the presence of God likewise speaks of a place of worship, where worship occurs. It's a meeting with God. You think of what Jesus says, verse, a verse which we cherish, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst of them. What makes it a worship uh, service and true worship is that Christ is present. And that has always been the essence of worship. The meeting together of man and God in a spirit of devotion and consecration and praise. That is always what has characterized worship, whether in the garden or in the tabernacle or in the new covenant. And all of these elements were present here, a spirit of devotion, consecration and praise. God, therefore, was present as he emphasizes throughout Meeting with man with a desire to bless and accept what he offers. And thus in this earthly sanctuary and under the old covenant we have, we could describe worship in this way as well. A meeting with the heavenly and the earthly. An overlapping of the two planes. And though God dwells in heaven as is evident from what is said. It is from that vantage point that our worship must ultimately be associated and understood. That by worship, 
We are dealing with the heavenlies and we are even brought into the heavenlies. For it is from there that God receives and delight in what is offered. And our earthly worship is always, as I say, our participation in the heavenlies. And it is from our earthly uh, sanctuaries or tabernacles, let us say, that God receives in heaven our praise as a sweet aroma. This is something clearly which stands out uh, with greater clarity in the new covenant. But let us also be clear that it was present in the old. And it is uh, from these earthly places that God offers his invitation to meet with man. A call to worship, let us say. A call to meet with him. And where he also, in these places of worship, extends his grace to man, which is a real blessing that he really enjoys in this life, but which he only can enjoy when he comes and he attends to God's ordinances. When he meets with the heavenly on the earthly plane. But on the other side, is the second central ingredient to worship. There must be man's bold approach. His bold and daring approach to the altar in response to the call to worship, which we find in Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 2. If anyone would come and offer this offering. For that equally is what worship is and how it must be viewed by us, especially now as man is viewed in light of Adam's fall and his expulsion from the original sanctuary as a sinner who is unworthy of God. One who is unfit to worship God and to dwell in his presence and to abide with him in his earthly sanctuaries. Nevertheless, in a daring and bold approach, he comes at God's invitation to meet with God at the altar of grace. And it is there that he offers unto God sacrifices of praise and worship from his own substance, something of his own self and his own possessions according to God's command. Something which God here calls in Leviticus 2 a memorial. Yes, a memorial unto man, but especially a memorial unto God. Something which he regards, something which he honors and remembers as precious to him. Something which he regards as an act of devotion. Likewise, not just a memorial, but he calls it holy. This little bit of grain that you offer on the offering. Do you know? And let, me, let the priest be sure to declare it is so. It is holy. Holy unto God. Set apart for sacred use. This is how God regards us when we come unto him. And so the two central ingredients are present. God and man both taking an active part as our DPW says. Directory of Public Worship. Actively involved and engaged in one another. But always at God's invitation. And at his command. Now let me just notice something else. Which is highly interesting. Though perhaps a little bit speculative. Uh, although I'll say at the same time that uh, just about everyone I read mentioned this. So I don't know how speculative it is. But that this was likely the grain offering. The offering that Cain offered just outside the sanctuary, and that it was likely that an altar was placed there just outside of the garden where the offerings were given. But it was that very offering which Cain offered and which was rejected. Uh, so I'm suggesting there was an altar there which faced the door of the sanctuary uh, on, on which Cain and Abel and their parents 
made offerings unto the Lord. We read in Genesis chapter four, verse three, that uh, that Cain. Uh, and by the way, with the cherubim that were set there at the door, it's a very similar picture to the, the tent of meeting that you find uh, in, in Exodus and Leviticus. And so the idea isn't all that far fetched. At any rate, we know that he made an offering to the Lord uh, and it was an offering of fruit, something very similar uh, to, to what we find in the grain offering. By the way, Voss calls it a vegetable offering. I, I don't know why some call it a vegetable and some call it a meat offering. But at any rate, it involved food. That's the important point. As we find uh, in Leviticus chapter 2, it was very likely that kind of offering that Cain was giving, and yet, which was rejected. When he brought it to the Lord at his altar, the Lord refused him. And thus he suffered further expulsion from his proximity to the garden and the altar that was likely found there. He was driven out of uh, that place we read in Exodus 4.16, or excuse me, Genesis 4.16. We'll come back to that in a moment. But what I especially am interested, as I have been, uh, uh, is, is to see the relation of the grain offering in light of the broader ritual. That is, its place, uh, let us now see in the scheme of offerings as a second major point. We've seen that the setting is a setting of worship. But now let us see its place, the grain offerings place within the scheme of all the offerings which we read about in Leviticus chapter 9. And so we need not detain ourselves with the various details of the offering. In fact, most of the details, as I have already indicated, had to do with the fact simply that various classes of men might offer it variously according to their ability. But rather, I'm interested in the bigger idea as it was found uh, as it was found as part of this larger ritual. Seen in all of the sacrifices occurring together at the same time and on the same day. Something of this I've already indicated in the way I've said that the blood must be offered along with the meal. But what we notice when we consider the actual order of the sacrifices is a certain structure to the ritual. First, blood must be shed. There must be atonement by blood and acceptance by fire. Let me say that again. That's a very crucial thought. There must be atonement by blood and acceptance by fire. And so the sin and the burnt offerings always come first. They stand Prominence. Now, I know the sin offering comes later in chapter 4. But if you read Leviticus 9, it actually stands at the front. And so the order that we're getting in Leviticus 1 through 7 doesn't actually represent the exact order. Leviticus 9 gives us the exact order. The sin and the burnt offering, atonement through blood and by fire. And how important this first point will be, we will see. It all informs the sinner's approach to God, which is... The effect of the ritual or the purpose of the ritual following this and as part of the same greater ritual. There is the tribute offering the food which is offered on the altar conveying a life as we've already seen, which is consecrated and devoted to God. In other words, the sense is first we are reconciled and then we offer unto God what is ours, even of our very selves or even our very selves. And finally, as a third major act, there is the peace offering in which there is a shared meal. 
And note, in the grain offering, the offerer does not eat of the tribute offerings. Only the priests are to eat of it and God by fire. But in the peace offering, it concludes with a shared meal, which concludes the whole greater ceremony. And thus the structure becomes... And we see how the tribute or the grain offering fits into this broader structure. And here I'm borrowing uh, from Morales in his book on Leviticus. Expiation by blood, consecration by fire, communion by a shared meal. Expiation by blood, consecration by fire, communion by a shared meal. Well, and in some sense, I guess you can see I really am preaching Leviticus 1 through 7, although I'm just doing it through the vantage point of this one chapter. But that is the overarching point and purpose of this whole uh, ritual ceremony. And you can't quite grasp any particular point unless you take it as part of the greater whole. And you see uh, the purpose of each within that scheme. This is the way for a sinner, God is indicating. One who is alienated from God to approach him in his holiness. The way which he's outlining in Leviticus and he'll later perfect under the new covenant. The sinner's bold and daring approach unto God. Morales puts it like this, summing up what I've been describing. The way to God is through a bloody knife and a burning fire. The way to God is through a bloody knife and a burning fire. And these are the most important parts of the transaction. Those which were found in the sin and the burnt offerings. And only once they had been performed could man make his tribute to God, but not before. And here perhaps we have a clue as to why Cain's offering was rejected by God. Although admittedly, again, somewhat speculatively, though I'm not alone in saying what I'm about to say. And it was because he sought acceptance only by tribute. From his own labors and of his own substance. And not first by blood and fire. If Cain would be accepted, he would be accepted by God. Not by atonement, but solely from the toil of his own hands. And he could not understand why God would not accept this from him, sincere as he was. Bonar calls this, speaking specifically of Cain. Putting sanctification before justification. This is to ask God, like Cain, to accept our persons before he has atoned for sin. And that is something God is indicating in the clearest and the strongest possible way that he will never do. He will never accept the worship of a sinner apart from atonement. But here is the amazing thing which God is indicating in Leviticus 2. And he's indicating it to all alike. It is that the one who does come by blood and by fire, especially now that of the cross, what he offers unto God as his tribute will be accepted. However small it be, God will delight in it. Yes, and it is considered by God, he says, to be a memorial, something he regards and remembers, and it is even called holy. Whatever we offer to God, Something equally which is delightful to him. A sweet aroma of delight. And so we must view all that we are and all that we have. As offered and consecrated unto him. To quote Bonar again. The moment we are pardoned. 
All we are and all we have become property of Christ. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. That is the spirit of the grain offering. And that becomes the spirit in which the Christian life is to be lived. A continual tribute unto God. Which goes along with and follows the burnt and the sin offering of the cross. And that is always the emphasis that you will find in the New Testament. We do this. By our tithes and offerings unto God, supplying the wants and the needs of the ministers in the sanctuary of the new covenant. We do that by giving him our very selves, always. Everything that we have, everything that we are is offered unto God now that we have experienced the blessed fruit of reconciliation. And all of it is considered holy free of the leaven of impurity and sin, seasoned with the salt of the gospel, consecrated with the oil of gladness and holiness. And it is all, let me say once more, all that we have and offer unto God is a delightful aroma in his presence. Yes, this is the assurance of those who are truly forgiven, that what they offer unto God of themselves is pleasing to him and accept it. But you cannot get the order wrong. Not ever. That is the great lesson here. And perhaps I've taken too long to say it. But nevertheless, you have to get the order right. But having done so, we may offer even of ourselves with the assurance that God regards and accepts what we offer as holy. For to quote Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 once more. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name and may we ever regard the Christian life in this way and may we do so now as we respond now to God's word with a hymn of response let us stand together and sing hymn number 36